Let's turn to Romans 5, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, if you're one of those that likes to put out in the margin of your Bible, Brother Gerald 4 slash 17 slash 82. Uh, let me say right up front, this is a brand new sermon. I, I, I have preached from Romans 5 a series of sermons, but this is brand new. So you can listen. It's not a rerun. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only out in the margin of your Bible, Brother Gerald 4 slash 17 slash 82. Uh, let me say right up front, this is a brand new sermon. I, I, I have preached from Romans 5 a series of sermons, but this is brand new. So you can listen. It's not a rerun. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, has, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, God or Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Could I have just a hair more here? I suppose that you, as a young person, learned to sing the Negro spiritual as I did 
Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart. I just want to be a Christian in my heart. The second stanza of that Negro spiritual goes like this. Lord, I want to be like Jesus in my heart, in my heart. I want to be like Jesus in my heart. And I suppose that the heart cry of every true believer is that he be like Jesus. Oh, I want to be like him. And yet we're all aware of how far short of him we, have, we are, we have become. We are not like him. And so those Christians are divided into two groups. There are those who are seeking more from him. And there are those who realize that they already possess all things in him. And there's a vast difference. There is nothing any more frustrating to spiritual growth than a person who is always trying to get more from Jesus, more patience, more love, more joy, more peace, always trying to get more from him when we already possess all things in him. The scripture says that in Christ we are complete that we already have all things that are necessary for life and godliness. And Peter says that we already possess everything that is necessary to be just like Jesus in the world. What is, what is needful then is for us to discover what we already possess and learn how to use it. I said last week I have three children. Each of them is normal. The doctor said they are just perfect. Well, he didn't mean that they were perfect. He meant that they had everything necessary to live a normal life, and they got it at birth. When they got old enough to walk, we didn't take them to the doctor and say, now we want you to attach their legs to their bodies so they can walk. They already had their legs. They just didn't know how to use them. And they just kind of drug them around with them while they crawled. And what is necessary is to discover what, we, what they had at birth and learn how to use it. You have everything that's necessary to be Christ to your neighbor, to live just like Jesus in the world. You just need to discover what you already possess and learn how to use it. I wish Jesus could paint your portrait. You could just sit for him for a while and he could paint your portrait and two or three days he'd unveil that portrait to you. You wouldn't, even, you wouldn't even recognize who he painted there. You see yourself as incomplete. He sees you as complete. You see yourself as, as being overcome. He sees you as an overcomer. You see yourself as poor. He sees you as rich who can do all things. You just need to discover what you already possess. Now, I mentioned last week that the key to spiritual growth is, first of all, an assurance of salvation, understanding, really knowing and believing and being assured that you're saved. And I said that the world is divided into four groups of people. There are those who are not saved and know it. There are those who are saved and know it. There are those who are saved and don't know it. They don't have any security. And then that fourth group of people, the most difficult of all, they're those who are not saved and yet know they are. 
They have a false sense of security. And I said that there are two reasons why a person can have a false sense of security who is not saved and knows that he is. And these two reasons are these. First, because we misinterpret or misunderstand the terms of salvation. And secondly, we misinterpret or mis-evaluating our own ability to meet those terms. I want to preface to what I want to say about this sermon. I want to go back and deal with that just a little bit. I didn't have time to do it last week. That there are those of us who have a false sense of security because we've mis-evaluated, we've misinterpreted our own evaluation of how we've met those terms. And in that group of people, there are two groups. There is a group of people in that group who are depending upon their own righteousness. You remember the rich story of the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus one day and he said, Good master, how do you inherit eternal life? How do you get eternal life? And Jesus answered his question with a question. Jesus said, Why call you me good? There is none good except the Father. Now scholars have jumped on that for centuries. And they've said that Jesus is denying his deity there because he disassociates himself from goodness. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was wanting that young man to see what righteousness, what goodness really is. And he was saying to him, in essence, you throw that word goodness around, you treat it lightly, you say this is good, etc. Do you know what it really means to be good? Do you really know what it means to be righteous, to be right with God? And then he turned to the young man and said, you know what the scripture says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the young man said, is that all? Why, I've kept all of these from my youth. I've never broken a commandment. And Jesus didn't do what you and I would have done. We'd have probably said, yeah, sure. He didn't, he didn't respond to him like that. Jesus responded to him like this. He said, Take your money, give it away to the poor. Now Jesus wasn't telling us that in order to follow him, rich people have to give up their money. He wasn't telling us that at all. Much deeper is the truth in that. What he was saying is this. All right, young man, money is your God. Give it away and follow me. Now what is the first commandment? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. What Jesus was saying is, you've missed the mark at the very first point. You failed the test at the first question. You've missed the point from the very first commandment. You talk about righteousness and goodness. You've missed the point from the very first. And you say, well, that doesn't relate to me. Yes, that's probably true, but this does. Some of us, uh, say are willing to admit, yeah, I know that I've sinned against the Lord. I know I'm not perfect, but I know I've done these things, and yet, but I'm not as bad as this. You know, at least I'm honest, and, and, and we kind of feel like it. God must grade on a curve. You know, I made it through college, uh, some classes in college, just you know, because the teacher graded on a curve. I, I remember I went and had an English class that I didn't really had some problems with. I'd come out of there and I'd tell my wife, I'd say, man, I blew that. Get back to the class just to find out everybody had blown it. I mean, and the teacher grade on the curve and I just kind of slid in, you know, on the fact that I was, I was terrible. Well, it was, wasn't as bad as some of them were. 
There's some folks that believe that God just kind of grades on the curve. I'm going to slide into heaven because I'm not as bad as, as he is or she is. You can forget that. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and the demand of this holy God is absolute holiness, is perfection, and none of us are. And then there is this group of people who are depending on the church. You ever wondered why some people come to church just on Easter and Christmas? I think that the real reason is is because in the back of their mind they're kind of holding on to the fact that somehow that church is going to get them there and they're not going to be completely disconnected with the church. They're going to be tied to it at least twice a year. Now let me say something parenthetically. It's hard for me to conceive this morning that a person could be a Christian and have disrespect and disregard totally for the church. Augustine said, if you do not have the church as your mother, you do not have God as your father. It's inconceivable to me this morning that a person could, could, could love Jesus and not love the things that Jesus loves. I think the odds of that against that are astronomical. A person who disregards and has no love or respect for God's fellowship, for the church, it's astronomical the odds are against him being a part of the family of God. But on the other hand, a person who is depending on the church as his ticket to heaven can forget it. I think I mentioned one Sunday, what if you left on Sunday morning, you saw me sitting out here on this sign out here, it says Atoka, 29 miles or whatever it says, on the, just kind of perched up there like a big bird, I mean a big bird. You know, there's this sign that says Atoka, you know, this way. And you went by and, and you said, well, you know, you'd think us crazy in the first place, but if you asked, what are you doing there, pastor? I said, well, I'm going to Atoka. See, this sign says Atoka, you know, 20 miles. You'd know I was crazy. You see, the sign is not, does not get you to a toka, just points the way to a toka. Now, the church does not, is not your ticket to heaven. It just points the way there. Now, that's why the Apostle Paul spends four chapters, Romans 1 through 4, talking about our sin and its separation from God, how we've sinned against God. And then he comes to chapter 5, and boom, he says, therefore, on the basis of what he says about our sin, he says, therefore, we are justified by faith. Now, that's the clue to it all, that one's justification, that is, one's right standing with God is by faith in the finished work of Christ and by that alone. And on the basis of that salvation that comes through faith in Jesus and our assurance of it, when we have abandoned all hope to him and have trusted in him, he says that we possess three things. The first 11 verses of Romans 5 tells us what we've got. And the rest of that chapter tells us how we got it. But those first 11 verses describe to us all that we possess now that we are a believer, now we've been justified by faith. And he describes three things. Watch this. First of all, he says, we have peace with God. Now, he does not say that we have the peace of God. 
He says we have peace with God. There's a vast difference. Peace of God is subjective. It's experiential. It's what you feel. It's the very own peace of God that is imparted to the believer. It's how God feels. It's God's peace. The peace of God is subjective, experiential. But peace with God is not subjective. It is not experiential. It's not what you feel. It is more judicial and positional. Peace with God is being brought into a position. Now watch this. It is being brought into a position to receive the blessings of God. Now you can have peace with God and not have the peace of God. But you cannot have the peace of God without peace with God. Peace with God is being brought into a position to receive his blessings. Now there are some people who feel that they've not been saved because they don't have the peace of God. They don't experience peace. They've, they don't have any joy. And they don't, they, don't, they don't have any victory in their life. And so they, they're saying, well, I must not be saved because I don't have the peace of God. Yes, you can have peace with God and not have peace of God. Peace with God is being brought into a position to receive his blessings. Let me illustrate it. Negatively, peace with God means that the war is over. When we signed a peace treaty with Japan, it meant that we were no longer at war with Japan. We were enemies, now we're at peace with one another. The war is over. The fighting ceases. But the other side, are you listening? But the other side of that is that when that peace treaty was signed, not only negatively was the war over, but, we, but Japan was put in a position to receive the resources from the United States, and, and, and they did. What happened when the war with Japan was over? Well, we poured billions of dollars of re reclamation money into Japan, and all of the resources in the United States were placed at the disposal of that nation to help her recover. You remember the story? The Mouse That Roared, and was made into a book. That story was, there's a little postage stamp nation over here that you know, was just terribly uh, economically depressed, and, and the leaders of that nation said, we need, some, we need some economic funds. We need some help from other nations. Uh, how are we gonna get this? And finally they decided to hit on this idea. We'll declare war with the United States. And when the United States smashes us in about a week, then they'll just pour all this economic aid into our country. So they declared war on the United States. The United States smashed them in a week, and then after the war was over, they started pouring this money into this little nation. They got exactly what they wanted. Peace with God means that I am able now to receive the resources of the one who was at one time my enemy. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's talking about in this passage. That's what he says in this verse that we were once enemies with him and now the war is over. And not only is it that we're no longer in conflict with him, but he now has made to us, available to us, all of his resources. Now peace with God has to do with relationship. Peace of God has to do with fellowship. You can lose your fellowship with God if you sin against him, when you sin against him but you never lose your relationship with God. My children are my children and always will be, even though sometimes we get out of fellowship. I mean, they're stuck with me and I've stuck with them for a lifetime because of that relationship.
You have peace with God. Secondly, we have a position in grace. Now he says that we have this introduction into grace. The word is access in the King James, probably a more familiar word. Now what does that word mean in, in, in the Greek language? It's a heavy word. It's used here and two other times, both of them in the book of, of Ephesians. And this is what that word means. It means to be introduced into the private chambers of a king. Now, you want to discover what you already have as a believer? You have this. You have an introduction into the private chambers of a king. And this is the best way to illustrate it. Down in Mexico, there is a great economic crisis going on. Everybody is familiar with that. And those poor people down there are looking up here at the United States. Those of us who, you know, the cost of living, the, the minimum wage is more than they make in a, in a, in a month. And, 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 and they're thinking, oh, if I could just get over to America, I could enjoy the resources and the luxury and the blessings that, that's, that everybody enjoys in America. My daughter lives along the border in Del Rio, Texas, and, and there's this constant influx of braserios, wetbacks they're called, coming out of Mexico into America. Now, if they find a spot where they can cross the Rio Grande, they're called hot spots, where the river's not so deep and it's kind of uh, obscure and there are not many border patrolmen, border guards. If they can find one of these hot spots, they'll cross the river and they'll come in by the hundreds into Texas, into this new way of life where all their dreams will be fulfilled in America. Now the place where they cross from this impoverished, deprived, depressed nation, the place where they cross is an introduction, is an access into the resources, into the blessings of the rich land. Let me tell you something. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. He's saying, here I am, I am and have nothing. And I have been introduced. There is this landing strip where I got from this place of nothingness into the private chambers of the king. It's the access that comes by faith. You know where, we, where I stand this morning? I stand in the treasury room of grace. And God just says to me and to you, help yourself to my grace. Now you're a poor student of the word if you believe that grace is only related to, is a word that only applies to that initial act of salvation. There is dying grace there is forgiving grace. There is living grace. Grace is something needed but not deserved. It's, it's the gracious activity of a benevolent God. And you need grace for this day's life. And this is what Paul is saying. You are now introduced into the treasury room of grace. You need grace to forgive that man. Help yourself to it. You need grace to love the unlovely. Help yourself to it. You need grace to, to die, strength to die. Help yourself to my grace. He just opens up his private chambers and offers us all that we need for life. Isn't that a beautiful thought? We, are, we have a position in grace. 
we have the hope of glory. We have a prospect of glory. Now, if you read verses 1 through 11, you will see a word that appears three times for emphasis. It's the word exult. It means to give high fives. I wonder who started that. High fives. Some of you act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Well, you're from another generation. You know, high fives are what, what we do when we get all excited, you know. We used to, you know, shake hands or, you know, put, slap somebody on the back or the backside. Now, now then, then we got with slapped hands like that, you know. You know give me five, walk, you know. Now it's, it's high fives. You put your hand over your head and, and you slap palms, you know, above your head. That's called a high five. Now, if you want a real high five, you jump. You know, it's amazing. You, you see these guys going off the basketball court and they jump just as high as they can, you know, and slap palms. That's a, you know what? They were really exulting. And when I read this word exult, I thought, these guys are slapping hands. I mean, they're high fiving it, they're jumping high fives. They were really happy. Now, watch what he's saying. He said, when we think about the glory of God that is our future prospect, we slap high fives. You know what the glory of God is? Now, now you gotta take, you got you can't get this by osmosis. The glory of God is what God is in his own nature. It's what he is and what he's like. In the New Testament, the word is doxa. We sing the doxology. It's praise. It's what God and only God deserves because of who he is and what he does. In the Old Testament, it's the word shekinah. And when the shekinah hovered over a certain place or object, it meant that God was there. Now, this is what he's saying. We exult when we realize, when we think that one of these days we're going to be like God. It means that one of these days I'm going to be saved not just from the penalty of sin but from the presence of sin and I'll be full of righteousness and full of purity and full of holiness. I'll be just like God. Now that introduces to us a concept that is bigger than this mind and bigger than yours. That we, not just heaven, he's not just talking about heaven, he's talking about the glory of the likeness of God. Now, what does John say? He says, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be like the Lord. That's our future prospect. But he said, we exult in tribulation. The word tribulation there is pressure. It means pressure to the breaking point. It's like that pressure that's so heavy, you feel like you're going to be crushed by it. It's talking about sorrow and despair and heartache. We exult in that. You ever seen anybody going around giving high fives because of their trials or pressures? One guy says to another, he says, man, I'll tell you what, I'm under such pressure and I feel like I'm going to snap. I can't stand it any longer. Well, great, let's high five. You, know, you, don't, you don't see anybody like that that exalt in their tribulations. Now, now watch this. It's the same word. He uses the same word, exalt, when he talks about pressure as he does when he talks about glory. 
Same word. And he's not saying we exalt in spite of our, our, our pressures. Some folks say, well, praise the Lord anyway. Drop off the anyway. I mean, it's not in spite of the pressure. It's because of the pressure. He said, we exalt because we're under such pressure, we're going to snap. Now, how in the world is that possible? Well, the key word is, in, is the word knowing. That's what James means when he says, count it all joy when trials come, knowing that your trials work perseverance. You know what? Listen. You know why, how a person can slap hands, high five, and exult when pressures come because of what he knows. He knows this. He knows that those pressures are going to work perseverance, that is stick to and he knows that that stick to is going to work proven character. How many of you young people have your driver's license? Raise your hand. You got your driver's license? Yeah? I've seen some of you driving without a driver's license, then, haven't I? I'm going to call the cops on you. When I was a kid growing up, I, uh, uh, we, we got our driver. We didn't have uh, driver's ed. Yeah, I see you laughing back. I've seen you driving, too. Uh, we got our driver's license when I was a kid, way back in the ancient days, before the wheel was invented. We, uh, we got our driver's license when we were 14. But I was driving a long time before I was 14. My dad put me on a tractor, gave me a pickup truck, and just put me out on the farm, told me to go to work. And so I was driving a car, a pickup truck, before I could see over the steering wheel. I was looking under the steering wheel. I, I really was. And, and, you know, and so when I got to be 14, on the day of my 14th birthday, I went to get my driver's license. Took this test, got this guy in my car with me, and we went around the block and came back in. He gave me my driver's license. He gave me a little slip of paper, stamp and deal on there. I was approved. Approved driver, what I was. Now, if a highway patrolman pulled me over and stopped me looking under that deal, he, he'd say, now, you look pretty young to be driving a car. You know what I do is whip out my driver's license. I may, be look, I may look too young to drive a car, but I've, got, I've been approved. I've I, I passed the test. Here it is. I'm an approved driver. Now watch. There's some of you wonder why God doesn't use you. You just wonder why God doesn't use you anymore than he does. You know why? Because you've never been approved. Every time a test comes, you want to get out of it. Every time the pressure starts bearing down on you, you find some way to weasel out of that pressure. You know what we do when we find somebody that's under some trial? We feel sorry for them. We go to them and say, I'm so sorry, and we try to figure out ways to get them out from that. It's the way God approves us. Is that when we go through the trial, the pressure, and we, we go through that, and he stamps approved on there, God's stamp of approval. Now we're qualified for his maximum use. That's what we know. That's why we know we can go through it. Then he says, lastly, take heart. It's about over. He says, not only do we exult in glory, not only do we exult in our trial, we exult in God. I want to tell you something I need you to hear. Until... Let me back up and say it this way. 
you're never going to make much progress in Christian growth until God is more important to you than gifts, than His gifts and His blessings. He said, we just exalt in God. We exalt in Him. You see, what most of us just, you know, we want His blessing and we want His gifts. But is He that important to you? That's what God was saying through Jeremiah the prophet when he said, they shall find me when they seek me with their whole heart, not my blessings, not my gifts, when they seek me. When God, to know God, to fellowship with God is the most important thing. And so 1 John chapter 2, the apostle writes, you remember that? He writes to little children, to young men and to fathers. Now he's not talking about physiological, say, he's not talking about chronological age. He's not talking about physically children, physical young men and fathers. He's talking about levels of spiritual maturity. You read that, you, you'll agree with me. He's talking about levels of spiritual maturity. And he's saying there's some of you who are just little children spiritually. There's some of you who are young men in the, in the faith. And there's some of you who have reached spiritual maturity, so he can call, he call them fathers. Now this is what he said, watch this. He said, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. He said, I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the devil. But twice, he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know God. Let me tell you, how you reach Spiritual maturity is when you get to know Him. When knowing Him is the most important thing in life. Listen, I'm through. I heard about a man who was very wealthy, young man. He wanted to be loved. He wanted to have someone to love. But it seemed to him that every young lady that he developed a relationship was really interested in his money. He was a little bit paranoid about it. He was a little bit nervous about that to begin with. And he wanted, he, he was afraid that he found somebody who loved, he loved it, and they'd just marry him for his money. And so he left that town and he went to another city and he just took a job as a common laborer. Didn't take his money with him. He just went over there and started a brand new life. And, and he started working through this company and he, he got up in the company and, and he was doing pretty well just but as an average wage earner. And he fell in love. And this young lady fell in love with him. They were very much in love. He loved her, she loved him. They decided one day to be married. He said, I need to tell you something about me. I haven't been totally honest with you. I need to tell you something about me that you don't know. I'm a millionaire. It didn't matter to her because she just loved him for him, not for what he had. You want to know how to grow spiritually? You just fall in love with him. Let's pray together. Father,
there's some of us this morning who have no peace with God. We're not in the position to receive His blessing. We're what the Bible calls enemies of God, aliens. I pray for those this morning who have not peace with God. I pray for those who do not have the peace of God because they don't know you. There's sin in our life. It's alienated us from you. I pray for us. I pray for those of us who have already received all that's necessary for life and godliness. We live our life without even appropriating what we already possess. God, I pray that as we stand in the treasury room of grace, we'll avail ourselves by faith of that which you have available to us. And if there is need this morning for personal, public decision for Christ's sake, you'll give grace and courage to do it because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now look this way. We have three invitations. The first invitation this morning is for those of you who need to go from there to here. That is from a state of outside of grace and outside of salvation to salvation. Therefore, being justified by faith, if you trust Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, abandoning all hope to him, say, Jesus, I trust you only. You'll be saved. Second invitation this morning is for those of us who, who really are living outside of the resources. We're doing it on our own. We're living on the basis of our own strength. We just need to come to a rededicate ourselves, to draw near to God, to abandon sin, to repent of it in our life and trust Jesus in the daily walk. Some need to join the church. The invitation is for God, is, is God's plea for you to do publicly what He's asked you to do in your heart. Would you do it while we stand? You come.